Right, um, thanks for inviting me up to Scotland, Julie, to uh, talk to you. Of course, you're a, a well-known racecourse bookmaker in your own right, as well as a betting shop proprietor, and daughter of the famous fearless Freddie Williams that used to take on the ring at Cheltenham. Um, what are your earliest memories of racing and betting, etc.? My earliest memories are just, they're just fantastic memories. They are of being babysat on the racetrack at Ayr, predominantly, where I was far more interested in playing um, on the swings and the roundabout and, and of course, having a punt with my dad, although that's uh, technically not allowed. Um, and then I'd always get the money back when it lost. So it's a brilliant way to be introduced where you actually can just go through a whole day and not lose a penny and still get ice cream at the end. Fantastic. So let's just say um, that my dad wasn't one to let things get in the way. Um, so I can remember a brilliant occasion where he um, had heard the, the heater in Oakenlake had went in fire. And most of us would just step back and let the fire engine do what they had to do. And the fire engine was en route. Um, they'd been told, but my dad managed to make it there in advance of them. And when he was asked, why would you not have let the fire uh, the fire brigade do their job? Why did you go in and risk, you know, getting burnt? He said, well, if they'd went in with their sprays, I'd have been shot for a month. And I wasn't willing to lose that kind of business. Um, and I think that was kind of the attitude that he brought to life. Um, he hadn't been naturally blessed with opportunities in his younger years. Really sadly, he had um, issues with his legs, which saw him in hospital for a lot of his young life. And um, he, at that point in, in time, we're, we're, we're different now. We very much would probably find that people get educated of them long-term, um, you know, in, in long-term in hospital when they're young. But at that particular time, um, education was secondary. Um, and my dad didn't, my dad left school and probably couldn't read and, and write very well. Um, so every opera, he, he, he was owed a bit of luck later in life and that certainly um, came in lots of, uh, you know, lots of times. But I think that adversity in young life, definitely it wasn't all luck. It was very much, you know, what he then, you know, his mindset really came in and played a big part of it. And you were telling me over lunch earlier a story about when the water delivery turned up. Can you uh, tell us about that? Oh yeah, another another time where um he ensured that <laughs> he ensured that um life was not going to get in the way. Um so there was this wide load and it was a new piece of machinery and it was for the water factory. And it arrived at the wrong factory. The whole point of it was they were moving to bigger premises. And, and Simon, the bottom line was that um, it arrived at this place. He phoned up the police. He said, look, we've came to the wrong place. Your escort's away. Can you send me an escort back? They said, uh, I'm really sorry. We've got nobody available until tomorrow. So if you understand in any way the cost of getting a machine to... Um, to 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 stay in one place for a whole twenty four hours, then you will one hundred and fifty percent understand that was not an option that was um that that was available to him. So he made a decision that it was only going half a mile, albeit right through the centre of town. So what he did is he got a fortlift driver to escort this white load down through the centre of town. 
Lord only knows, but nothing happened. Nobody got hurt, hurt in the process and the bit of machinery got to the, the right place and the right time scale. Um, and yeah, once again, crisis was averted. On a happier note, maybe not for some bookmakers, your dad wasn't averse to a tilt with his own bookmaking brethren in the ring. Can you tell us about any of those stories? Yeah, one of his first horses um, was a horse called Icebreaker. Um, and she went off at Musselburgh, 33 to 1. And he wouldn't bet all the time. He would always, uh, he would always um, want to feel that he'd got the form right. And he felt, he'd, well, he obviously, he obviously knew how the horse had been performing at home and effectively thought it more of a chance than 33 to 1. So I'll always remember being 15 and uh, going to Musselburgh. The horse was um, second from last up round the back bend but anyone who knows muscle bra knows that you can easily come from there and and win on the straight in the way in um and the horse you know obviously gave him one of his best days because that was his first ever winner and he it was one for him it was like one from one and it was uh, yeah and i think he took home a few quid as well um apart from cheltenham your dad bet at Newbury. Now there's a story that's now folklore in racing. Somebody's actually come up and asked for a million quid on one. Uh, there's various versions of it. Can you give us the proper version? Simon, I wasn't there then. So um, this, this story is going to remain a myth, it would seem. Um, my understanding from what I have been told about it is that someone come up and asked for that. And my dad turned to them and said, you know, it's water I bottle, not liquid gold. Um, brilliant answer when you're on the spot, you know, so um, very humorous, but I can't vouch for the truth of it. But what I do know is I was there um, some years later, 2004, and um, there was a punt on Onamusapur. Now, I probably said that all wrong. Basically, it means pig on the back in Gaelic. So if you're a Gaelic speaker out there, you can correct us in my pronunciation, maybe spell it out to us. Um, anyway, it was a pig in our back, that's for sure, um, because the horse like went over the line and it cost us a million pounds, um, or just short of that. Do you know, again, there was always lessons to be learned and everything. And what I found that night is Dad and I went back to the hotel. We had had been having a great day up to that point. That went wrong. Went back to the hotel, he went to his room, I went to mine. We met up in the morning and you wouldn't have known it had even happened. It was a case of, it's a new day, it's a new way and we, we, we go back out and that didn't ever happen. The line was drawn in the sand. And I think that when you're a bookmaker who operates at that level, and I've always been clear that I don't personally, but when you are... And I watch and I see, that's one of the big things that um, comes across to me is that you, you absolutely have to ensure that you don't take the carnage of the day before or the, or the up stuff of the day before and allow it to affect your next day. The other thing you never do, and this was another thing of, of Dad's, is if, if any coin drops in your bag, get it out straight away because he only ever had losing days when a coin dropped in and he never picked it back out. There you go. <laughs> Sometimes your gut is everything in racing. Um, you can't quite describe how I've seen people come up to me, maybe a lady who's putting on a fiver, but there's something about the approach. There's something about how 
And when I go to the track, I don't know if um, anyone out there has listened to um, the song The Fix by Elbow, but I put that on on my way to the track because it reminds me there are people out there who know more than me, believe it or not, even though I'm a bookie. And um, they do. And the bottom line is I, I recognise that I'm there to pitch my wits against those people who potentially have a lot more knowledge than me. So what I have to do is do thorough research and do the work to make sure that I go to track with as much knowledge as I possibly can. But where that can lead you to is just a gut feeling about something. It can lead you to a sense that something's different, even if it is only a fiver. And that happened probably with my dad in 2002 with Like a Butterfly. Um, phenomenal horse. He loved that horse. But he just had a feeling that he was going to be approached for a big bet. So before we went to the track, I'll always remember we were staying in a hotel. I had no Wi-Fi signal. We couldn't get online. We couldn't get a phone signal. We couldn't, and, and we were running around this hotel, trying every spot in the hotel just to be able to get in touch with people to try and get a bet on Like a Butterfly before we got to the track. We got to the track and sure enough, um, the wager was struck. Um, and everyone obviously thought that we had lost a fortune. But my dad in that moment for once could stand and go, well, actually, we've probably almost broke even um, because such was the gut instinct about that on that particular occasion. And such was how much he loved that horse, because I think that maybe sometimes we forget that bookmakers actually really love horses. He loved that horse. He loved Rhinestone Cowboy. Um, he loved Paso. Um, that was his first ever bet and he followed that horse forever um, that you know we forget that sometimes that we, we we can become emotionally attached to a horse as well and like a butterfly was one of those horses um, and fortunately he got that one right so um, yes yeah, so dad um, I, I have no idea what my dad would think about the ring now um, and, you know, hey, he was ingenious, do you know, so who knows, he might have been able to carve out a niche within it that um, I can't particularly find at this stage. Um, but I think he'd have been a little bit disillusioned, which is a shame. Um, all that said, I think he saw that coming. And Simon, were you not questioned heavily about whether you were just, um, you know, um, trying to earn a little, a couple of quid out of him in the early days of Betfair and you were doing a bit of, um, what's it called again? I was being a floor man. A floor man. Yeah. You were being a floor man. Of course, you were being a floor man. But I think at that time, he thought that you were just playing the odds. Not you in particular, but there was a lot of people playing the odds game. So he, I think he foresaw that, you know, that's where things were going to head off into. Um, but anyway, back to, back to reality. So I took over the business um, nine years ago, two shops and obviously on course. Um, the shops... I've always been around. I've always loved. Um, I've got fantastic customers. They're great. They're great people. And I've known them since I was really young, considering um, I was the slave labor that existed in the family. And uh, my dad got me working from a very young age. So um, <clears throat> I it was, you know, uh, they 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 have um, they 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 have and they continue to be a place that I really enjoy going. Um, but let me think a couple of, a couple of times when, yeah, 
couple of times where I nearly get caught out in the shops. Junior football. Let's talk junior football. This is not where kids play football. This is below senior level. It's adults, and it's just it's just below, and it's it's treated really seriously in in our hometowns. And we've got a few very good teams. So we've got the we've got the Glens, we've got Cumnock, we've got Talbot, all within kind of if you take a a circle, all within probably five miles of each other, gets very competitive. So I remember um, Talbot had just won. Um, the Scottish Cup, and this is massive. If you win the Scottish Cup, you get to play in the real professional Scottish Cup the next season against the senior teams. So you can imagine the celebrations that then ensue. Everything shuts down for a week. The pubs don't close. The police ignore that. Um, and everyone just parties. So they had one last game to play, and it was Talbot versus Pollock. And Pollock were coming down and um, everyone was in saying, oh, what price are Talbot tonight? What price are Talbot tonight? Oh, this is really strange, uh, you know, because they they're, they're, they should in theory be really heavily odds on. But there's something not right about the way this has been asked. So I did some research. So apparently all the Talbot players at that particular point, because it was one of those roasting summers, so roasting summers, barbecue, drink, celebration, were all rolling about, you know, and everyone was very aware that the Talbot players were still rolling about four or five days on and um, were not really very fit to be running about in a hot, sweaty summer on, on the pitch. So um, fortunately, fortunately, somewhere along the line, that gut instinct thing kicked in and I said, no, I'll tell you what Pollock are. They're four to seven. <laughs> um, but as it turned out, nobody bet in the match after all um, and the, the team went out and it turned out, true enough, um, Talbot were down 2-0 um, and I think it was 2-0 um, or 2-1. And they had to substitute the players off. And on went the coach, who was like in his 50s, and someone else, some other random person who doesn't really play for the team. And they scored two goals in the last 10 minutes. So Talbot ended up win winning in the end. Um, so that that was a good, uh, a, a good learning curve, a good lesson of um, being alert to what was going on locally and how local people would always know more than me and whether uh, some the goalkeeper was off because they were away at a family celebration or this was happening. And junior football has continued to be a challenge, let's say, over the, the last nine years, um, week in, week out. Um, we make up our, our own prices and... Um, see where it takes us because there is nowhere to hedge them back the other brilliant story was a political story and it was six about ooh, three months after my dad died and they do say this is where the SNP first got their hold was in this election it was a by-election it was out in the east end of Glasgow and it was such a strange one I had somebody on and I think they were one to four Labour were one to four to one because at that time Labour just ruled the north and um, they were literally days away from the election and the guy absconded he just disappeared nobody knew where he'd went but 
just before that had happened, I'd taken a £10,000 bet. This is all starting to sound a bit suspicious, isn't it? He absconded and I'd taken a £10,000 bet. Not at all. Anyway, um, so I'd taken a £10,000 bet at one to four. Now, okay, not a massive liability, but it was almost giving money away. I mean, it was one of those where you think, why am I doing this? Well, I'm doing it because he's a good customer of dad's. So I'm going to run with that. Um, anyway... We then fast forward and Labour are trying to find a new representative um, who's going to come in and who's actually going to who's actually going to take over from the, the person who's absconded. And the only person they can find is this woman um, who then who then takes on the position. You're not going to believe the woman was my tutor at university who is a friend of mine. So I and 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 she and Labour duly get elected out of the East End, which had always been the place where you just turned up and you were elected. Um, SNP got their first foothold in proper foothold in Scotland and defeated Labour. And I won the £10,000 by default. Um, so another, uh, you know, just another unique story. None of them have came along again. Um, and I don't know that I'd take a £10,000 bet now anyway in a one-to-four-shot um, political bet. But, though, uh, you know, it was a moment. So, um Funny story, Cheltenham. Um, there's a and and also I really this this story I really like because I love when people can look at something and not just look at the value in their pocket. So there was a guy come down to say hello to me at the track, and um, Paddy Brennan was on a horse, and the horse was looking like it was going to win coming up the Cheltenham, um, the Cheltenham Hill, but it was getting close, but. It became clearer and clearer Paddy was definitely going to win and this guy was getting more and more and more excited and he almost started running almost in tune to the horse coming up the hill and he's running for miles and miles and he's jumping up in the air and so when he came back I said oh did you get a winner and he's like no I was actually on the other horse that got beat but I just really like Paddy Brennan. <laughs> Which I just thought is, you know, there's not many times on a race course that you have someone who can just go, I was on the second, but actually my passion for him, his skills, his horsemanship and his abilities is so amazing. And I, I think it was a little bit like that. You know, Tony McCoy literally lifted that horse over the line. Um, and you, you, you know, every minute you just kept thinking it's beat, it's beat, it's beat. And we lost a fortune. We, we, you know, we done our brains. Uh, and I just remember standing and cheering and just having that moment where something else takes over. Um, and I, when you're involved in horse racing, um, round about me, you won't be able to see, but there's books and books and books and they're just full of stories. And they're full of amazing stories. They, and they're not all about gambling. Um, and they're not all about earning money. They're about passion. They're about life. They're about experiences. They're about courage. Um, and, you know, you just feel part in a moment when you're at Cheltenham, when you hear that roar go, or when you see something as brilliant like that on a track. You, you just feel like you're part of a sense of community. You don't know the people who are around about you. You don't know the 20 people cheering in front of you or behind you, but you feel that you're part of it. And, you know, and without getting too sentimental, because it's, it's going there now, 
that's what we buy into out with the bit where you get you, you hopefully earn a crust um and you can make a bookmaker's sandwich albeit you know it's not appreciated by some so uh yeah um so i think that this has got such a depth of history um and i hate when i see any aspects of our sport that pulls that down a little bit because you have a very small fraction a very small proportion of something that is amazing being referred to as a description of what is our what is you know something that we should all be very proud of and you know um and that we love um so yeah I don't know what else to say Simon to that actually and I'm getting far too sentimental and we're going to cut it at that point very well documented now it's 2006 and um, what isn't so well documented is it started really well on the first day brave inca won the champion hurdle and we had been betting that horse from the start of the season anti-post we'd got some great prices along the way it went off 74 favorite in the day such was how impressed my dad was with that horse that even our restaurant manager got a touch on it, which was fantastic. Um, so my dad broke his own rule that day. I can remember him cheering um, that whole rule of never get too high went out the window in that moment. But as we know, it wasn't to stay that way. The Wednesday went pretty uneventfully um, and we got Denman beat um, and a favourite didn't make it over the line. Then we hit the Thursday, race one, the juicing. And um, at Revelier we laid a hundred grand to seven to one. Obviously um, it won and we were already seven hundred thousand pounds behind. It was a cold day. There was a long wait to the last race, but to rub salt into the wound, we we, we took a bet in the last race called Kadun. And Kadun returned 50 to 1, we laid it at 33 to 1 for £5,000 each way. Um, again, everyone thought there was not going to be a story in that race. Um, the reporter came up at the end and was saying, oh well, so the last race would have been a bit boring, there won't be much to talk about. I think my dad would have loved for there not to have been a lot to talk about. We headed home from the race course at about £1 million down. Um, and to, to make matters worse, on the way home, um, clearly the people who robbed us, they weren't racing fans at all, um, because they'd have realised that we were a bit penniless. Um, so we were heading home and we unfortunately got boxed in, thankfully, and, and, and attacked. Thankfully, none of us were, were hurt. Um, we all lived um, to tell the tale. Um, but you wanted our worst day in racing. They don't come much worse than that. People often ask me whether Dad hedged the bets back. Obviously, they, you know, when he took that amount of money on, people thought that some of that money went elsewhere. So actually, the liability that we were standing with was a lot less than you know what it appeared when it was reported back. Um, here's the bottom line. 
as soon as someone who is prominent walks into the ring and um, people know that they're inclined for a big bet, then it's like watching the Pied Piper walk through the, 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 the crowd and there's a following happens and it's all the workers who work for other bookmakers. And believe me, those ears are listening in very, very carefully so that they could get it back to their, their, their employer or their pitch as quickly as possible. So as soon as, um, if say the horse was six to one at the time Dad laid it, you can guarantee within 30 seconds of that bet being put through, Everywhere you look in the ring, you would be lucky to probably get even nine to two it. So my dad learned very, very quickly. If he took a bet like that, he was stuck with a bet like that. Dad bought his pitch in 1999. Up until that point, you couldn't actually buy pitches. It was a case of unfortunately having to wait till somebody died or someone retired. And at Cheltenham, the pitch level, the, the list was so, so long, the waiting list, that it was looking like Dad would never get to work at Cheltenham. However, as I say, all that changed in 1999 when they allowed bookmakers to actually buy pitches. So Dad had just been through a triple heart bypass and along with his friend Mark, off they went to this auction. I have to admit, I was a bit upset at the time. He was my dad. I didn't want him going chasing off to buy a pitch, you know, and, and to create a stress that he didn't need at that particular moment in his time. I was wrong. The bottom line was that it was the best thing that ever happened for him. He absolutely loved Cheltenham. He came alive when he had that pitch. He couldn't actually believe he was getting to work there. It was a place where he dreamed to go to be a customer. Never mind go and actually get to work. Um, so at the auction, he was successful. He got number two pick. What that means for people out there who don't understand the picking system, you don't get a specific allocated slot. What you get is you get to choose in what order you choose in. So um, number one gets to choose anywhere within Tatterstalls. Then dad came after him and he got to choose. And as any good retailer knows, your location, your position is everything. It will affect your turnover. Um, so we still have a number two pitch um, at Cheltenham where we work next to your um, employer, Simon. Um, ben, um, on the big days, he's to my left and we have John Hughes to the right. It's fantastic company to be in. To steal a quote from the Queen, after our Anna Cerebellis on the Thursday, my dad made the wise decision not to go back to the track. And we headed on up the road a little bit um, sorer um, for our experiences back to Scotland. But when we looked at the results that night, we all looked at each other and said, how actually lucky, maybe the robbers have actually done us a favour. When the jolly Blackjack Ketchum come up that hill for John Joe O'Neill and everyone, everyone was on it. The roars were unbelievable when we watched it back on the TV. Um, we realised that probably in that one race we'd have lost more than the robbers got the day before. They say that fortune favours the brave. And my dad wasn't hanging about when he got to Cheltenham. He was there to be brave. He was there to be bold. And the first bets that he struck of, of great significance was a Nick Dundee. Uh, so he took two bets from the same person, 11 to 8, each time for £80,000. As the guy was walking away, my dad shouted over to him, do you want it again? And kept the 11 to 8 on his board. 
nicked indeed went off five to four SP um, and uh, to all intents and purposes he looked like the winner. He was cruising then catastrophe struck. Nick Dundee fell third out um, and, and basically 65,000 people um, in the crowd's hearts were broken. Um, it was first blood to dad. It didn't always work out that way. And to be honest, my dad's bank balance probably fluctuated more than the euro sterling exchange rate at the moment. Um, and all it took was, you know, uh, how long it took to run a couple of miles as a horse. Simon, you asked me earlier whether my dad wanted me to go into the bookmaking business um, and you had read somewhere that we had got involved in a restaurant in, in order to divert me from that particular course, course of action. Um, yeah, you were probably right. He had a view that you could become very penniless very quickly in this game. And he also had a view that I might not be hungry enough for it. My instinct wasn't going to keep that money in my, in my bank account. Um, I've survived so far, I think you'd be pleased to see that, um, but there was elements in tr of truth in what he was saying and perhaps I don't take the risks that he felt he needed to take, but I just knew in 2008 when he departed too soon, I knew I wasn't ready, I wanted to be a player in the jungle. You asked me what Dad would have thought about the on-course market today. Um, the truth is, I don't know, but I know he was already getting frustrated. Exchanges had come in um, pre-2008, and one of his biggest frustrations was arbing. Where, and, and for people who don't know what that is, it's where you lay a price that's shorter, and then obviously because if Dad didn't fancy something, he would go a couple of points above potentially that price, so people would want to get on at that price. And he found it really frustrating that he's standing taking a risk and people were taking no risk to earn money um, and he wasn't really willing to play that game of allowing them risk-free money off of him. Um, who knows whether he'd still be in the game? You also asked that. I don't know. But knowing my dad, he would have maybe found an angle that um, the rest of us haven't quite found yet. Finding the winners on the track are not the only challenges that we, we have nowadays. There are a number of challenges that present mainly around business. Um, the expenses are huge. We have workers' wages, we have entrance badges, we have a tober, which is our daily betting badge. We have expenses of staying over. Um, and once you add all of them up, you could be around £1,000 a day just to actually turn up to the track and work. Um, so you've got to earn that before you can end, earn anything. What we also find is the good days are not as good. So you used to have, I remember when I first went to the track along with my dad and we had a rule. So on the way down, we agreed that I could take anything up to 500 pounds. And then after that, I had to turn to him and say, do you want this? that rule went out the window after one race because we were just getting so many bets that were over £500 in every race that it became totally impractical to stop business to say, do you want this? Um, 
nowadays to try and get a five hundred pound bet in you know in a whole day would be a challenge, um, and that's a shame, and it makes it harder when somebody does come along and wants a bigger bet to take it because if you take that, you could be three race meets away from earning that money back if you lose in the race, whereas it used to be you'd only be one race away from taking bets like that again. You could easily start to make your book if you got it right. Um, it's a declining market um, and that's a shame. What we find is our market share is much more people who come to the track and they're betting on, they're there for a day out. And so as much as it's about the, you know, the, the um, racing, it's also about the entertainment and we form part of that entertainment now. Um, we've already lost the tic tacs to technology and they were part of the colour and the atmosphere of the ring. I hope we don't find in the future that what we're going to have is race courses with no bookmakers. And it's not that far away. There's a race course down in the south who had to pay bookmakers to turn up so that, you know, basically an attendance fee so that they could return an SP. So it's not impossible. Oh, excuse my dog coming in to say hello if you can see him. Um, this is Gus. He's fantastic, um, but gets in the way of filming, clearly. Um, so I hope um, we don't see the, the, the pitches disappear um, and race courses without that atmosphere. So my top five moments on a racetrack, um, they're really hard because there's so many, but the ones that stand out, Wichita Lineman, absolutely immense in 2009. Tony McCoy literally lifted that horse over the line. I lost money in the race. We, 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 we got a bit skint, actually, if the truth be told. But I could sit back and I looked at it and just thought, I've just seen something we're going to talk forever. I saw racing history being made. And that was immense. And that was probably much more important than my pocket. Um, Brave Inca in 2006, day one, um, was just an astounding moment just because we'd followed the horse for so, so long. Um, any day working with my dad on track, any day. Um, but particularly the first day at Cheltenham, which was just amazing um, and, and such a great platform. My husband's horse, uh, Netminder, won on Scottish Grand National Day um, and it was trained up here in Scotland by Sandy Thompson and he part owned it along with his friend Dave and um, Kona, Sandy Thompson's wife. Um, that was phenomenal. Um, and uh, finally, Icebreaker, when I was about 15, winning at Musselburgh was another special moment. So I've been very blessed. Um, and it's just five of many. Sometimes the problem with having a husband who has shares in a horse means that everyone in the world thinks that you know a little bit more than you actually do. Um, what we do know is that the horse is in good form. We'll know if it's well placed. We'll know if the distance, or we'll, we'll have a view whether the distance is going to be its optimum. But what we can't tell is what else is going to the, to the track and what kind of condition they're coming in and what they've been doing at home. We don't have that inside knowledge. In fact, my husband's involved with a horse right now called Automated, um, who's based over in Ireland with Gordon Elliott. He's a nice type, but he needs everything to go his way. He, he doesn't like to go to the front. He has to sit in part of the crowd. And with a horse like that, where they've got to come through, a race has got to fall properly, tactically for him. And if that doesn't happen, then he's not going to get in the mix um, when it comes to the winning line. So we can't tell that, I promise. <laughs>
When my dad had just opened his first shop in Cumnock, um, he was a bit astounded and, and probably was rubbing his hands a little bit when a lady came in and said, I would really like to place a bet on Elvis um, turning up alive. But not only was he to turn up alive, he was to turn up alive in a little village, which is only about 10 miles from Cumnock. Um, and he was to turn up alive in this little village called Muirkirk within six months. So my dad gave her odds of a thousand to one, which probably actually, in fact, seems a bit mean now. And she put on her fiver and away she went. And he thought no more about it until another person came in and asked for the bet, then another and another and another. The odds were getting slashed on Elvis turning up in Muirkirk within six months alive. So basically, um, my dad started to panic a little bit. He was new. He was fairly inexperienced in this game. So he phoned up his good friend, Henry Michael, who was a long-established and fantastic bookmaker. And he said, Henry, what am I going to do? Do you want some of this? Do you know, I'll give you a bit of it. And Henry burst out laughing and said, put the money in the bank and don't give it another thought. I think my dad sweated it a little bit for those six months. It was a fairly long six months. And at the end, nothing, you know, nothing came of it. Elvis did not turn up alive. But what he discovered later was um, a fortune teller in Muirkirk had seen it in the cards. There were dog tracks aplenty um, around our local, local area when I was growing up. And Dad cut his official teeth there um, in the mining community of Oaken Lake. Um, but before that, he had learned his skill, his uh, knowledge of gambling and holding nerve and instinct at pitch and toss schools. These were a serious business. I know a guy who told me a story recently about how he almost lost his future wife because he put up and lost her engagement ring um, in, <laughs> at, at the school. Um, so dad took that instinct and, and that learning into his official career um, at the dog tracks and one night it held him in reasonable stead. Um, the traps opened up, a dog came whizzing out and my dad immediately turned to the clerk and said, that's banjo. Well, actually, I think there was a few sweary words. I mean, my dad's normal sweary word of choice was suffering cats. And if you heard him say that, you knew to run to your bedroom. But I think that I think the, the words that particular night began with F and various other ones. That aside, um, the guy, the owner of the dog, came up to get paid out at the end. Banjo, who had previously been a cream colour, was now black. And it turned out the local barber had bought in some dye um, and it was to colour ladies' hairs, but the colour didn't particularly suit the ladies of Auchinleck. So when that and that batch wasn't getting used there, it was getting used to turn dogs to various different colours. Dad paid the owner and bided his time. And years down the line, when this person had became a good customer, just one day, out of the blue, he just turned to the guy and he says, and you think I don't know? And the guy says, what? He says, banjo. The guy's face turned a suitable <laughs> shade of red. Um, it was enough said. And um, yeah, a good story to tell. Another dog track story that my dad would tell um, involved an argument with a customer. At that time, you didn't get a slip where you walked away and you could see what you bet. What you got was a ticket with a number on it and it was recorded in the book um, what your bet was. So this particular night, the guy came up to collect with his ticket, his winnings, and the clerk clearly said, that's not what you bet. 
the guy, an argument ensued and the guy went away. It was left at that, that particular night. However, when dad went back the next time, the guy was walking towards him. In between times, dad had discovered this guy was just out of prison and he was thinking the worst. His heart skipped a beat as the guy put his hand into his top pocket. He's thinking, what is he going to do to me? The guy reaches in and pulls out a cigar and comes over to my dad and says, Freddie, I'm really sorry. I got that wrong the last day. Um, so he, he, he survived that particular argument. Um, my dad loved dogs and there's a brilliant story my mum tells that, um, that um, I didn't know about until a couple of years ago. And apparently there was a dog at the track and um, my dad um, had felt sorry for it because the owner wasn't very happy with it. So my dad brought it home with him. At that time we lived in a council flat, it was two bedrooms, it was we, and we had neighbours all around us and the walls weren't that thick. Um, and this dog howled and howled and howled. So my dad ended up going down the street and sitting in the middle of the local town square with this dog for seven hours until the next day came and he could find it a home. He loved the dogs. He was so passionate about them. Um, and even on the day, you know, like even though <laughs> take away those two, <laughs> two stories, right up to the day he passed away, um, he worked on the dog track, not because he could earn that much money there, but because it was his social life and it, because it was actually a fundamental passion. As you said, Simon, um, there was often bag men came to the track, and by that we mean people who had a fair bit of money in a plastic carrier bag. And this particular day, one of the bag men found us at Cheltenham. Now, I'm convinced it was a Tesco bag, but there's been some dispute with our team over that over the years. So, Mr. Bagman, if you're out there, could you maybe confirm, was it a Tesco bag? Anyway, um, inside this Tesco bag was uh, £20,000. And he came up and asked for an SP on Marlborough. My dad, who would normally say no, no thank you, um, because he was 92 on the board, for some reason decided to lay him the SP. The horse won. It was returned 11 to 2. So £110,000 was duly counted out. And when the guy came to collect, handed over along with his £20,000 stake. Um, the next day we were getting absolutely hammered and when people when it got busy it was really busy to the point where the whole of the joint would almost topple over people at the front couldn't get out people at the back couldn't get in I had bruises all down my my side because people were actually punching me to try and get their money on it was exciting it was a buzz and in amongst this chaos Tesco man turns back up and um, he's standing to the right-hand side of my dad. So my dad, even though people were trying to chuck money into his hands, stopped thinking, I'm going to get a little bit of this money back. I might get the chance to earn it back. So he turned to the guy and said, what can I do for you, son? And the guy said, well, see the money you paid me yesterday? Eh, you were a tenner short. My dad looked at him, <laughs> pretty much lost the plot. The guy went away. There is a lesson in this, people. When you get your winnings from a bookmaker, make sure that you count it in front of them. One gamble that dad took that was to impact his life more than any other, more than the battles on course, was when at the age of 13, I was going out to swim at night. It was four lengths of breaststroke and I, he, he challenged me to hit a specific time. 
I had been going on about getting a dog probably by that point for five years. He was at the stage he was sick listening to it because it was a daily thing. It wasn't like weekly. I didn't even, you know, it was daily. Can I please have a dog? So he thought, well, if I tell her this, this is impossible because it was four or five seconds off my previous time. She's not going to achieve it. And I'm going to get peace for maybe six months because she had her chance. He totally underestimated the power of desire. I wanted that dog so badly, nothing was getting in the way. I went out, I swam my little heart out, I hut the time. My mum had the most horrible journey home because she knew that she was going to have to tell him when he walked in the door that uh, I hut the time and there was now a dog needed in the family to, for him to match, to match the pet or to match the promise that he'd made. Um, within three months, we got a husky. Uh, a husky called Mance came and joined the, Will the Williams household. Dad was one of a number of bookmakers who had big reputations at the time. Um, John Banks being one, he was legendary um, for his antics on, on course. And my dad aspired to be part of that. Um, so him and Alec Farker used to turn up at your race course. This was a time where computers didn't exist. Nobody told you what price a horse should be. And both my dad and Alec were capable of going up and put and pricing up. So it used to be they would walk into the ring, they would price up and everyone would follow their lead. Um, they were exciting times. There's only once that I've ever worked on track where there wasn't a computer system, the, the internet went down. It was at York. It was great fun. I had prices there, fortunately, that day. Was able to price up straight away. Um, and it was back to the old excitement of people looking at each other's boards, people trying to work out what maybe someone else might know. Um, I lost the race, but it's probably the most exciting race I've ever worked for myself. Star Sports TV, our weekly magazine TV programme packed with tips, news and banter on the key sports events of the week. Check out the latest episode at starsportsbet.co.uk. BeGambleAware.org. Over 18 only.